Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Autumn is upon us, and at my house, that means turning on the oven and doing lots and lots of baking, which in turn means baking pie. While I love classic flavors like apple and pumpkin, this year I'm trying to get out of my comfort zone a bit, which makes the book today's guests have written especially exciting. Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin didn't start out to be bakers. They're actually Atlanta-based physicians who between them have won hundreds of baking awards at regional and national competitions. They've applied their scientists' minds to the recipes in their debut cookbook, The New Pie, devising the perfect mix of ingredients, time, and temperature to get the best possible result every time. With the book, they also share the show-stopping flavors they've developed over the years that set their pies apart. Chris and Paul joined us in the Booklarder Kitchen in September 2019. Here's Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin and the new pie. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. This is great. So, I'm Chris. This is Paul. A little bit about us. We're not professional pastry chefs. We don't have a bakery. We are home bakers. We met because of our love for baking. Um, if In the very front of the book, we have a little story about how our first date was over the telephone because Paul was living in Atlanta. I was still living in Pittsburgh 10 years ago. We just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary in July. And so, and we have a book. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so when we started baking, um, after I moved down to Atlanta, we started doing baking competitions just because it sort of sounded fun. Um, sort of did it as a lark. And uh, the very first contest we did was a pie contest in a little city north of Atlanta called Dahlonega. We each entered a pie, entered in the sweet category. Paul had a savory meat pie that he entered and ended up winning the blue ribbon in the sweet category. And we thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. And so that pie, by the way, is in the book. It's the summer strawberry oh, pie, right. which was, I guess, his... Uh, uh, we call it the pie that got us started. Yeah. Yes. So after after we did that, we sort of branched out. We started entering some local fairs. Um, Georgia has a big agricultural state fair called the Georgia National Fair um, that we have entered now for eight years. And then we also started entering the National Pie Championship when we started doing more pies. And so we've entered that for probably about six or seven years. And in 2017 was sort of our big year. Um, I won the Best of Show Award at the National Pie Championships in the Amateur Division. So after that, we sort of stumbled into the book deal in a way. Um, we, uh, um, Kim Severson from the New York Times, who lives in Atlanta, saw the press release about the show and uh, wrote a story about us. And we, so we were in the New York Times food section. And after that, we got the book deal. Sort of our style of baking is really cemented in the book um, when we've entered into the National Pie Championship, you have to constantly innovate. You know, they have categories like cream pie or cherry pie or blueberry, but you really just can't do, you know, a, a plain blueberry pie or, you know, a, a banana cream pie and really expect to walk away with anything. You really have to innovate with new flavors, something that looks, you know, dramatic or spectacular, something that looks really, you know, worthy of being one of the best pies in America. In the book, um, when you look through, we, we tried to create a book that is not like any pie book you've ever seen before. We really tried to bring um, our perspective to it. So we have, um, we take, as scientists, um, so uh, Paul's a physician, I have a PhD in epidemiology. We're 
very scientific. We're very methodical people in a lot of ways. And so we tried to take that to the book. So we have a lot of, you'll notice for every recipe, we have not only volumetric weights like cups and tablespoons, but we also have weight for every ingredient in ounces and in grams. We prefer using grams. Some people prefer using cups, so we've included that as well, so it's accessible for everybody. Um, We also have a variety of what we consider to be novel flavors. So some flavors that you've probably had before, but maybe not necessarily in a pie. Uh, For example, um, if you've had a chance to try a sample of the Thai iced tea pie, if you've ever had Thai iced tea at a restaurant, it it should taste just like that. (laughs) But when you look at the recipe in the book, you'll also notice we did um, something novel we did some whipped cream ice cubes as well. So we sort of have a technique where if you add piping gel to whipped cream, which is something you can get at any cake decorating store, it's sort of a modified um, cornstarch product, you can freeze the whipped cream and then cut it into cubes. And then when the cubes come back to a fridge temperature, they keep their shape. So they sort of look marshmallow-like, but if you were to cut through just like whipped cream. And then the third part, so in addition to the, the precision ingredients and the new flavors, we also have sort of novel techniques, one of which is like the use of sous vide that Paul talked about. That's sort of the, one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a nice overview of sort of you know, where we're coming from and, uh, and, and the book itself. So, yeah, and as Chris said, we're, we're not professional pastry chefs. So the way we learned is we own, I think, one of every single one of these in here, <laughs> yeah, just about. And so honestly, we, we have an extensive cookbook collection and we read them. Um, so it's, that's our, our casual reading as well. So throughout the book, you'll notice um, we reference it you know, sort of like a scientific paper. Uh, we would write, so you know, where did we learn this one technique? We learned this from Rose Levy Berenbaum. We learned this from David Lebovitz. We learned this from America's Test Kitchen. So we, we try and give our little citations. It's like, you know, this was a clever idea and then we took it in this direction. Yeah, and in fact, uh, throughout um, the book, uh, we, we get our inspirations for these things from all over the place, both from uh, cookbooks we read, as well as pretty much everywhere we go, we're, we're constantly thinking of ways we can turn that into a pie. Uh, so if we have a, a cocktail somewhere, we go, oh, hey, this, these the flavors in here, this would really work in a pie. All, all kinds of, you know, walking through a farmer's market, seeing a, a random uh, piece of fruit that we haven't seen before, or, or we tried something something clever like that, so... Uh, different ways we can sort of innovate pie. A um, little bit more about the, the book itself. Uh, before every uh, recipe, we do provide some additional guidance for you, because I think a lot of people are a little bit nervous sometimes about making pies. You'll notice this little gray bar that's at the top of every recipe. It's our star rating. So for every uh, recipe that's in the book, we give it a one, two, or three star rating uh, for ingredients, for equipment, and for construction. So if, uh, if we think... These are very easy to find ingredients that we think most people will be able to find in your average grocery store. It's a one-star pie. If you might have to go to at least one more store, pop into a liquor store, for example, to get, to get that bottle of cognac, let's say, yeah, that's, that's now become a two-star pie uh, for ingredients. And if there's something really unusual that you might actually have to go to a, 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 an odd specialty store or you know, order you know, from the internet somewhere, yeah. uh, that's a three-star. Likewise for you know, equipment, the, if the, a standard kitchen outfitted for baking something simple, that's a one star. You know, working your way up to you know, odd specialty ingredients or excuse me, equipment, uh, that would become a three star. And then construction is just you know, easy, medium, hard. In fact, in the, the, there's a section in the back of the book called showpiece pies. And most of those are going to be some of the more complicated uh, three star pies uh, that, that really are showpieces. So if, if, uh, if you wanted to start with something simple, pick up you know, some one star pies and you can work your way up to the, the three-star pies in the back. 
Yeah, actually, people have asked, what, what's one of the easiest pies to start with if I wanted to, if I haven't done a lot of pies? And the one we've recommended a lot is on page 69. It's called the 6151 Richmond. And so it's sort of our, our um, inspiration for that pie is actually the Golden Girls. Um, and so all of the components of that pie are inspired by a character in the Golden Girls. So the crust is a uh, pecan graham cracker crumb crust, relatively easy to make. And that's inspired by Blanche Devereaux, the Southern Belle of the show. And then um, the filling is has limoncello in it, an Italian lemon liqueur uh, for uh, Dorothy and Sophia. And it's topped with a lingonberry jam. Um, which is actually surprisingly easier to find than you think it is. If you can't find it at your grocery store, it's usually on the top shelf in the jam section. You can find it at any Ikea. Um, <laughs> and then the whole pie comes together as a no-bake cheesecake because all the girls like to, you know, the whole show centered around their conversations with cheesecake. So that's a, a relatively simple one to make. And actually being here, if you live in the Seattle area, you have great grocery stores, great. You know, so ingredients probably shouldn't be an issue few for access them. And um, in the back of the book also, we have a whole section on sources. So anything that we think is not available in any standard grocery store, we, ha we tried to provide a source for that. I was going to move on to one of the first chapters in the book, which is crusts. Um, most people, when they're talking about pie, uh, especially if they've been reluctant pie bakers, um, they'll say, well, you know, I've never had any luck with crusts or you know, crusts intimidate me. And I, I think one of the big reasons for that is most pie books that have been written or, or people that have tried to teach pie, I think they, 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 they do themselves a disservice because there's, I think, a fatal flaw in a lot of pie instructions. Let's see if this sounds familiar to you. So you, you start with your flour and you put in your, your fat, you cut that in somehow. And now please add in somewhere between one and 17 tablespoons of water. <laughs> yeah. Until okay. it looks right. Yeah, until it looks right, until it starts to feel right. If it doesn't feel right, Add a little bit more. Okay, you don't know what you're doing. You're trying to learn, and you, you're not really sure what feels right. Um, so you might look at it and go, gosh, that really does look dry and crumbly, but I don't want to make it too wet and sticky. So uh, they said between you know, one and six, I'll pick four, or just something random like that. Um, and so that, that makes it really difficult, I think, to, to, to get a good uh, uh, pie dough. And so one thing we found to get a reliably repeatable way of making pie dough is you want to do some precision. And so people like to say baking is a science and that often will, will intimidate people. Um, but I think what that means is when we say baking is a science, it means your actions have consequences. Yeah, so if, if you make changes, if you, if you take an action in this, in this recipe, it will have an effect. And so if you add too much water, you're going to get a sticky mess. And so we want you to be able to get the exact amount. And the best way to really do that is by weighing your ingredients. So Chris had started mentioning that before about the importance of why we really like to measure things in grams. And for, for pie dough in particular, what we have you do is you put your bowl on your scale. And actually, I'm curious, how many people here already have incorporated that into their routines of, of weighing their ingredients. Fantastic. Yeah. How many people find it off-putting and say, you know, I, my grandmother always used a cup and I learned how to use a cup and I feel I don't want to use a scale. Or, do we have any? Okay. And that's okay. I okay. mean, it's, I mean, it's not against the law, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but let me tell you how I can help you. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you, if you put your bowl on the scale, you know, tear it to zero, add your flour, so you have, we know that you have the exact amount of flour uh, that you need to match the exact amount of, of fat and the fat that we use in our pie crust. 
is a, it's a mostly butter crust. We add a little bit of vegetable shortening. We give you the option of if you, if, uh, you don't want to use shortening, to use some leaf lard instead. And then to add the exact amount of water or liquid that you need. The way we do it is we put a little uh, cup of some kind on the scale. We use a, 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 a little bit of vinegar added to our water. So we measure out a, a, a teaspoon of vinegar first, or depending on the size of crust you're making, add your vinegar, don't re-tear the scale, and continue adding your water so that you can measure out the, the prescribed amount. Uh, so for example, for the, the uh, deep dish single pie, uh, it's 7.5 ounces of flour, eight ounces of, of butter, I think one and a half ounces of shortening, and then two ounces total of liquid. And by we, weight. By weight, exactly. Yeah. So if, and if you can get that exact amount, it's not between one and 12. It's, it is two ounces of, of liquid, and it works every time. Anticipating a question you're, gonna, you're about to ask me is, I've always heard that if it's raining outside or if it's a particularly <laughs> sunny day, that that can dramatically affect how much uh, liquid you may need to add to your pie. So that always sounded a little fishy to us. And I was getting ready to actually do the experiment to see at different humidities, how much water can flour actually absorb? And I was stopped from doing it because a food scientist has actually already done it. And, and so, so we, 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 we read his paper. And in fact, at the dramatic extremes on the planet. So, you know, if you were in the you know, Amazon, Amazonian rainforest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah uh, versus you can start to reach the point where you can get a measurable amount of liquid in your flour. But most of us aren't at these extremes. And so in temperate climates, even when it's raining outside or humid outside, flour actually, once it's, it's milled and it's in the bag and it's in the grocery store, if, the, if it's going to absorb some water, it will do that. And then it doesn't keep changing over time. And so it's, it's a relatively stable ingredient. And likewise, if, if you're comfortable in your house and you're able to live there um, um, and, you, and you feel good enough to bake, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, it's not going to change. The, the, the amount of water that that flour would absorb based on a change in the weather uh, is, is an irrelevantly small. You, you can't probably even measure it on your scale. Which so, makes sense, because if you think about flour, flour can only really absorb so much water before you look at it and go, this isn't a flour anymore, this right. is a paste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'd, I'd say that's probably my, my summary on crust, is that if you, can, if you can accurately measure your ingredients every time, and so again, if you're, if you're thoroughly committed to, to using your, um, your measuring cups, again, try making sure that you, you measure your flour the same way every single time. You've probably heard this before, but if you were to gently scoop some sifted flour into your cup, versus you know, taking it and just sort of mashing the cup in there and, and really getting a whole lot of flour. Again, you can get probably 25% difference in the amount of flour that's in that one cup, mm -hmm. which of course will completely throw off the recipe if, if you do it you know, differently each time. And pie crust is a very simple thing to make. It only has really flour, fat, and water. And so if you have too much flour, it's really gonna throw everything off because it's gonna affect the amount of water you need. You know, when you, when you make the crust, you know, sort of the adage is you don't wanna make it obviously too wet. It becomes very hard to roll. And you don't wanna make it too dry either because when you roll it, if you've ever rolled pie crust, it's too dry, it tends to crack. It's hard to move around. You'll end up with splits down the middle. It's because I think people are nervous that they're gonna add too much water. And so they err on the side of too dry, and it's just as frustrating. You know, it's really a, a sweet spot is relatively narrow for pie crust. And so we try to hit that mark. And actually we've made this pie all kinds of places. We made it down in St. Thomas where it 
is very humid where, you know, watercolor paintings are <laughs> dripping off the wall sometimes. And this is the pie crust that we make all the time. And we live in Atlanta, which is considered relatively humid. Um, and we've made it in dry areas. We've made it up north where my family lives. It's never failed us. What about the um, practice of using vodka? Yeah. Uh, so the, the whole point of uh, the, the vodka-based pie dough, uh, I think that was uh, started by uh, Kenji Lopez-Alt and America's Test Kitchen. So by, uh, I guess the concern is if you want to make it easier to handle, sometimes having a, a slightly wetter pie dough can uh, make it easier to handle. You can use it uh, right away without having to let it rest. It's sometimes easier to roll. But if you add too much water, you can make it tough. And so the whole idea behind that is that by using vodka, uh, the, the alcohol component in there isn't going to produce additional gluten to make a tougher crust. So it, you're kind of using you know, fake water almost, but it, it, it allows you to do what you want to do without getting uh, that additional gluten. Uh, so that, that is, is one strategy. I guess we don't use that. We found that if we use the, the, the vinegar and water combo and let the, the pie dough um, rest, completely hydrate. Again, we found it to be an extremely reliable, pretty tasty dough. But we also say too, I mean, there's one of the, the adages in the front of the book is there's more than one road to pie town. So yes. if you have a pie dough recipe that works for you, by all means, use it. Exactly. Yeah. So feel free to have some flexibility. So if, you, if that's one thing you're already very comfortable with is your pie dough, use that with our fillings. Give that a whirl. Yeah, by all means. I'd say in addition to the standard pastry crust that we have in the book, uh, we also have a, a cocoa pastry crust, which is... Um, it was uh, rather tricky to develop, but it's, uh, it's pretty easy to do and, and rather tasty. And then several different crumb crusts as well. Mm -hmm. Yes? Would you prefer utensil for mixing the crust? We prefer to use a food processor. We make a lot of pie doughs, and we can you know, double, do a double batch in a food processor. Um, but we have instructions for both a food processor and by hand um, with a pastry blender in the book. Depending I, I on used to prefer hand, and he was always preferring a, a food processor. Mm -hmm. But certainly, as we scaled up and we're doing more and more and more, it, it hurts after a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just to keep keep doing that. And yeah, and and um, electricity is wonderful. Um, yeah, so you know, you know, I think we use these machines because it really does. Um, you, you can you can make them work, um, and they can really cut down on um, on sometimes cleanup speed. Yeah. Yes. Do you standard shortening or high ratio? Standard shortening, yeah. And um, Paul mentioned if you don't want to use vegetable shortening, uh, what we recommend is something called leaf lard. Um, so that's a high-quality pork lard that's made from the fat around the kidneys. Which So it ends up being a very clean, pure white fat. Um, it should have no, if it's well done from a reputable supplier, it should have no sort of porky or piggy flavor, which you usually don't want, especially in a sweet pie crust. <laughs> Um, and so you can usually find that uh, most major cities will have a supplier. Um, Fenny and Flow, I know, has good recommendations. Um, you can find them through Etsy. They ship nationwide uh, for, for leaf lard. Some people, I, I can't remember, someone just came out. I think it might have been Cook's Country from um, America's Test Kitchen just did a review of lards. And I think they found a couple supermarket brands that they thought were okay for pie crusts. Um, so I think maybe things are changing in general, the, the leaf lard also has the same physical properties, really, as, as shortening. So in terms of melting point um, and how it helps you sort of you know, uh, work the dough, we, we add that extra little bit of, of shortening. It makes it a little bit easier to roll. So when, when pie dough comes right out of the fridge for an all-butter crust, it's going to be as hard as butter. It's going to be pretty hard to work. With the additional uh, shortening, you, you can get to roll it a little bit easier, um, and it really helps uh, the, the flakiness of the pie as well. Mm -hmm. And then um, I guess some of the other chapters in the book... Sure. We do a whole section on the pie crust, and we have 
Oh, I guess uh, briefly talk, while we're talking about pie crust. So for each of the pies, too, we, ha- we have different recipes for the crust. So some will say it's a standard or some for a deep dish. So depending on the recipe, we let you know which size pie dish you should use. Because, um, you know, if you're making an amount of filling, you want to be able to make it in a dish that's going to hold it all. Because you've spent all that time and, and that money making, you know, that delicious filling. You don't want it overflowing in the oven. You don't want to have to take some of it and put in a little ramekin in the fridge because it doesn't all fit. So we have sort of three standard sizes. So we have um, what we call a standard glass or, you know, standard. And we give measurements for these too. So if you have a pie dish from somewhere, you don't know which one it is, get out your ruler. Um, so a standard glass one is sort of like your standard Pyrex or anchor hawking glass, maybe about one and a quarter inches tall, nine inches across. Um, the one we use for our crumb crests is sort of a lipless Pyrex. If you've seen them, all the crumb crust pies in the book have them. They're sort of, there's no lip and they have like little handles on the side. Um, it's nice we can just push the crumbs into that. And then the other one is for a deep dish pie. And so for that, um, we use the Emil Henry um, pie dishes. And actually, just a note, we used, we've used Emil Henry pie dishes for years. We ran into one of the representatives recently at a conference, and yeah. they said, oh, we'd love you to take some of our pies. And yes. so we asked if we could do some giveaways. And so they were really happy about that because we, we, ceramic is really our, our choice um, for baking. But if you bake in glass, um, it's a good advantage, too, um, if you're... You can take a glass dish out of the oven and look and see if your bottom is um, baked enough on your pie. So that's really helpful. And if you don't have like an Emil Henry, um, there is a glass Pyrex one dish that's the same size. It sort of has a ruffled lip around it. You can find it in most stores now. And again, we give the measurements for all that. Um, and so you'll know in case you see in there, we, if we have a standard uh, pastry crust or a deep dish pastry crust, that's what the difference is. And then uh, the other chapters in the book, so the, the first chapter that has actual full pie recipes, there's about 75 recipes in the book. Um, the first one is cream pies. So cream pies are pies that all those crusts are blind baked. So you bake the crust empty with some weights in them until it's completely done. And then you take a filling that's usually cooked on the stove um, and you add that and you're done. It goes in the refrigerator. Because we also have, later on, one of the chapters is custard pies, which is a little different. Some people put the two together. Custard pies are something like a pumpkin pie or like a baked cheesecake where it's sort of egg-based and you bake it in the oven and it sets. And then you put it in the fridge. So throughout the book, in addition to trying to uh, do these really fun and new flavors, um, we add these modern techniques. And so uh, ways to sort of not just make, you know, sort of better tasting pies, but uh, tools so that you can make pies better. And so one of the things we've done for, for custard pies, I was thinking about sort of, sort of the, the chemistry of how, how custard pies will set. And I was looking up, I think it was in Modernist Cuisine, about uh, the properties of eggs. So eggs will start to set into a, um, an irreversible gel. So, you know, like scrambled eggs, so they'll set. They start at about 130 degrees and they get fully set at around 165, 167 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I was thinking, well, how can we use that to our advantage when, when making custard pies? So if you think about the standard way you make a custard pie, sometimes you, you mix all the eggs in the cream or whatever it is that you're doing, pour it into the, uh, the pie shell, pop that into the oven to, to bake. Sometimes, uh, and usually the standard instruction you'll see is until it's just jiggling, okay? And, and I think if anyone has ever done this, you, you sort of go back and forth, well, it's, it is still jiggling. Is that jiggling too much? Is that too wet? Uh, because it's going to stop baking once it comes out of the oven. And, and, and you're just sort of uh, wondering, yeah, at what point do I really need to do this? 
And then if, if you wait too long, what you end up with is a fully set pie in the middle and the edges are starting to get hard and crumbly and, and, and that's no good. Or if, or if you, you missed it again, now it's, it's, it's wet and soft in, in the middles and you don't want that. With our background as, as sort of uh, competitive uh, bakers, you never want to sort of be in that position when you're doing a competition that you end up with a great recipe at fantastic flavors and you failed because of some silly technique like that. So the thing that occurred to me is that how can we better control the, the, how the eggs will set in a custard pie? And so uh, in, in several of these custards, uh, uh, what we do is we have you heat up the custard uh, to 130 degrees on the stovetop using your instant read thermometer and then pop it into a warm pie shell. So that way you've already brought it up to just about where it needs to be. And so, and now at a nice lower temperature than you probably would bake normally, you can get it gently to that completely setting point. And so I've done the, the, the hard work for you as well. We've gone through the, the iterations of, if you put a pie into a, let's say a 275 degree oven, that's already 130 degrees. How long will it take to get there to, to the 165, 167? So, and those are the times that are in the book. In particular, the, the caramel popcorn pie is probably the smoothest custard I've ever eaten. And, and it, it's because of that technique that you can, you can bring it up to just about where it needs to be and then cook it at a nice low temperature uh, for just the right amount so of time. So it's sort of creamy from edge to edge. Yeah. And the other thing we do with custard pies is, and everyone sort of has an opinion on this, but I grew up eating pumpkin pies at Thanksgiving that had a smooth custard and a sloppy, wet, underbaked bottom. And I just thought that's what it was. Um, just thought, well, this is pumpkin pie. But um, what we do is we partially blind bake all of our crusts for a custard. So for a, a pumpkin pie, you have that delicious, smooth custard, but you also have a nice, crisp, golden brown bottom. Um, as well. That's, um, that's the caramel popcorn. And so Paul mentioned um, an instant read thermometer. That's one of the tools that we do recommend if you can find, well, you can find them anywhere now. They're great tools. You don't have to spend $100 on one. You can get good ones for probably 30 or 40. Um, it's great. And it's just, it's for more than baking too. But we also give you clues too. Sometimes they, you know, it's hard to tell if you're looking at a pie, especially for something like the caramel popcorn, because for a custard like that, when it's at temperature in the oven, it doesn't look like it's right. So if you were to jiggle it, it would slosh almost, a very technical baking term. <laughs> um, and so um, an instant read thermometer um, for some of those pies really, really helps. And then, okay, so do you want to talk about fruit pies? Sure. Yeah, so fruit pies are some of my favorites. So let's see, with fruit pies, there's a whole lot of things that have to happen at once. They're, they're, first of all, there are different styles of pie. So you'll have, as Chris was mentioning, with a cream pie that has a fully baked uh, bottom crust already, and you, then you just fill it. With fruit pies, you can have a complete double crust pie that has a, a top crust that's um, a solid. You can, you can weave a lattice. You can do cutout crusts. You could do an open face pie if you wanted. You can do some kind of crumb topping, as well as um, uh, we have a sort of a, a cake type topping in there as well. But for, for your classic, like that's on the cover of the book here, like a classic apple pie that has um, um, a bottom crust, a top crust, this is one that you actually can't blind bake, unfortunately. You have, if you want your pieces of pastry to be sealed all around and, and to be uh, baked at the same uh, doneness level, it has to go in raw. And so that's, that's a real uh, feat to, to have some success with that. If you think about it, the, the crust, this raw pastry crust that you have there, has to um, uh, completely brown, dry out, uh, and, and complete crisp, rather. Uh, so you want that to be uh, perfectly cooked. 
at the exact same time that the fruits have cooked, gotten um, transitioned from that sort of raw state to the, the cooked flavor that you want, but not cooked too much so that they've started to get mushy. As the fruits cook also, they release liquid that has to dissolve the added stuff that you've put in the pie, which is going to be some sugar and some kind of thickener. The way these pie, uh, the classic pie thickeners, some people use flour, cornstarch, tapioca, um, arrowroot. So there's different starches usually that dissolve in those fruit liquids, and then they have to reach a certain temperature. So they, uh, as, as the temperature inside the pie rises, the starch is able to dissolve and hydrate, and then it reaches its gelling point. So as it gets to a certain point, all of those um, starch molecules form these little cross bridges, trap the liquid, so that that way when the pie cools down, it forms a gel. Depending on how much starch you've added, or you know, thickener uh, that you've added to the pie, uh, if you've added enough, or, or the perfect amount, you'll get that lovely pie goo that's holding all the, the pieces of fruit uh, in place. Not enough, it's a, a loose, sloshy pie. Uh, too much, it's thick and, and pasty. So you'd love to be able to hit that exact point as well. So again, for, your, for the, the standard classic fruit pie, all of those things have to happen at the exact same point using a, a pretty blunt tool, an oven. So an oven that's just set to a temperature like 350 degrees. The crust has to, to brown. The, the liquid usually after it's come out of the fruit has to probably reach a boiling point if you're using something like cornstarch. All at the right moment, so the crust hasn't burned yet, the fruit isn't, isn't mushy. So that's, again, a, a conundrum. So one of the ways we solve that, actually there's several different methods that we use to make fruit pies. One of the ones I'm most excited about is the use of sous vide. How many people are familiar with sous vide cooking? Awesome. Okay. How many of you have ever done it for a fruit pie? <laughs> one. For fa- your pie. Oh, <laughs> All right, great. Yeah, so the, the point of, of sous videing the fruit, so what sous vide is, yeah. you take any sort of food item, usually put it in a, a plastic bag, remove all the air, so and, and either by vacuum sealing it or um, uh, something like in a Ziploc, you can dip it under water to sort of release or to, to force all the air out, and then you seal it. So now there's no air in the bag, and then you cook it in a water bath. So you use this device called an immersion circulator. They used, uh, they used to be fairly expensive. They've gotten pretty cheap. Um, I think last Christmas we were watching, like they were on sale in Target for you know, sometimes around 50 bucks, so not too bad. Okay, basically the whole idea, what this immersion circulator does, it heats water to an exact temperature and circulates it around the water bath. Okay, so what that does for you, most people, if they've used sous vide before, they'll cook eggs, they'll cook their steaks. It's, it's a neat way to, if you wanted a, a perfectly medium rare steak, to get it right to the temperature that it needs to be. You can then simply quickly sear it, you know, 30 seconds on the outside so you get the crisp crust and now you have the perfect steak that you want. So we've decided to use this, uh, this technology for cooking fruits. So there's a, a substance inside uh, most pie fruits called pectin. So uh, pectin is, is a, a naturally occurring gelling substance within the fruit uh, that reaches its gelling point at about 150 degrees, okay? What's really nice about pectin too, it's a, um, a heat-stable gel. So once you pre-cook the fruits right to the gelling point of pectin and you allow them to cool a bit, that pectin forms its gel inside that apple or cherry or cranberry or whatever it is that you're using, okay? And it now is protected from overcooking. If once, once the, the heat-stable gel is formed, um, you would have to 
uh, cook it to a much higher temperature to break down the pectin. So what that does for you is it gives you perfectly cooked apples. So the apples have now converted, within this pie here, uh, from their raw state to that cooked apple flavor that you really like. But being that we've allowed it to come out of the water bath, cool down just a bit, and now when you cook it inside the pie, it's not going to shrink down anymore. It's not going to turn to mush. They'll remain cooked apples that have that lovely bite that, that, that you want. You can still tell that's a, a nice uh, apple with a nice chew in there. The other great thing that sous vide allows you to do, being that you, as you cook it to the 150 degrees in the water bath, the fruit juices come out. Now, if you're cooking an apple pie, how much juice is going to come out of the apples that you bought at the grocery store in April? Okay, is it going to be different than the apples that you get um, in, in the fall? Probably. And then depending on what variety of apple you use, or even just how good the farmer was or how sunny it was, or is, is it a, you don't always know what you're going to get out of that apple. When you cook the fruit sous vide, it releases the juices that are going to come out of that fruit, and you can measure it. Okay, and you know exactly, I got three quarters of a cup of apple juice out of those apples. I got a cup and a half, or, or whatever it was. And now, how much thickener do you need to add? You can add the exact amount of thickener that you need for that volume of juice to get that perfectly thickened goo right exactly where you want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's so much fun. And so we have, we have uh, I think, uh, sous vide recipes for... Uh, I know there's about six. Yeah, Meyer yeah. lemon, cherry, uh, there's a plum. The apple. Apple, of course, cranberry. But in addition, if, if again, if, if that's a little too much, you say, I don't have the, the sous vide, I'm not ready to, to go there yet. We have other methods of, of sort of controlling the doneness of your fruits. Yeah, we have some stovetop recipes. Exactly, there's yeah. one where you roast the fruit in the oven. Yeah. 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 So it's all sort of the same technique, though, is that you can control the moisture then you can control the amount of thickener, and so your pie will never be soupy, it'll never be pasty. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we can talk about the cocktail pies. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. we also have nut pies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a lot of classic, just again, just different fun flavors. So uh, classic cocktails that you know and love. Uh, so Manhattan's, Old Fashions, uh, Strawberry margarita, margarita, Mango Colada. Oh, and, and a, a really fun one. Um, it's called The Hair of the Dog That Bit You. <laughs> uh, so what that is, uh, after a whole chapter on cocktail pies, we had to throw in a hangover pie as well. Uh, so it's, it's a Bloody Mary pie that's uh, uh, made inside a, a Cheetos crust. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> It is not savory. It's still all the all the uh, recipes in the book are are dessert pies. So if you can imagine a Bloody Mary and a Cheetos crust, it's actually a sweet pie. Yeah. So actually, yes. it's so there's two pies in the, in this cocktail chapter. They're probably if you look on a spectrum of sweet that are closer to savory but are not savory. So the hair of the dog is one, and the other one, which is I think my personal one of my personal favorites in the book. It's hard to to choose. If we had children, I could choose a favorite child. I don't know if I could choose a favorite pie. Um, <laughs> But there's, it's called cheese course. And so it's a pecan graham crumb crust and then a layer of fig jam made with port wine and then a layer of it's a gorgonzola dolce um, blue cheese cream on top with toasted walnuts. So it's sort of like a cheese course you get at the end of a fancy meal. So you get your figs, you get your wine, um, you get your blue cheese, um, but they go together spectacularly. It's a great sweet pie. And I'd say one of the easier pies to make. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more questions. Uh, when you guys are looking at new flavors, how do you decide which things to adjust to make a recipe your own? Many different ways. I mean, as, as we're trying to sort of build flavors, um, we'll think about you know uh, either some things that will 
hair well. So, um, like, let's say if, if we're pulling in, let's say from, a, uh, let's say a cocktail. So we're, we're out at dinner and we have a, an unusual cocktail that we've never had before. Some flavor combination. I don't know. Yeah, mint. We had we had um, gin and raspberry last night. Oh yeah, good. there we yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so like that's a fun one. And I thought you know that might actually be a nice flavor combination. So now then you'd start thinking about how am I going to incorporate gin into a pie. Uh, raspberries, I think, are probably easier to, to imagine how you could do that. But then also, just so, just you start with the basic flavors, but then also the components. So do you need a crunch element? Do you need um, some kind of other texture in the pie? Once you've decided what you're, you know, okay, I'm doing a, a gin custard and a, a raspberry a curd, I don't know, that is going to be this. So I, I might want some kind of texture in there. And then once I we, we try the flavors, we might say that, okay, gosh, bitterness of the gin is really forward here, and uh, I'm getting the tartness of the of the raspberries. What am I missing? And then you, you might decide that, okay, I'm, I need a, some sort of counterbalance here to, to make it a more appealing pie. So yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's an iterative, iterative process like that. Yeah. For gin, for example, if you're doing that in a cream pie and the gin would go in essentially raw from the bottle... If that's too much, then we think, well, can we adapt this to a custard where some of that flavor would cook off a little bit and be more mild, sort of more behind the scenes. So it's sort of, we think about like, you know, not only the flavor, but would this work best in a cream pie? Would this be more of a nut pie? Yeah. Um, or maybe even to, sticking on the gin example, not use gin at all. Just say like, maybe I'll just infuse something with juniper berries and other botanicals to approximate a gin-like flavor. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Chris Taylor and Paul Arguin for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The New Pie and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.